Why did the Civil War happen? Could it have been avoided? Pulitzer Prize-winning author James McPherson shares his thoughts on these topics and others when we return. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpet cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. Where the heck are our seats? I don't know. Keep climbing. You called around before you bought these tickets, right? Well, there weren't a lot of ads for ticket places, so I... You do have the SBC Smart Yellow Pages, don't you? I don't know. I didn't really pay attention. You should have. They have more ads, more info we could use. It's going to be hard to do the wave all by ourselves up here. Well, get up. Let's try it. For the most complete, reliable information around, look for the SBC Smart Yellow Pages or go to smartpages.com. And with me today is Dr. James McPherson. Thank you for joining us, Dr. McPherson. You're welcome. Let's pick back up where we left off just a minute ago. And you were talking about the important impact that abolitionist thinkers like Frederick Douglass and others had on Lincoln's thinking about the war and its justification for it. You had mentioned that, in fact, there are a lot of abolitionists, in both in the party and outside of it, that were putting pressure on Lincoln to pursue this war, not just as a matter of reconciling the Union, but also as an issue of um, uh, an issue that was simply morally reprehensible. Can you talk a little more about that? Well, uh, they, at the beginning of uh, the, the history of the United States uh, with the Revolution and the Constitution, uh, every state had had slavery, um, but partly as a consequence of the revolution and partly as a consequence of economic changes, the states north of the Mason-Dixon line and of the Ohio River had abolished slavery in the late 19th century. Uh, at the same time, slavery had grown stronger and stronger in the south with the expansion of the Cotton Kingdom. It had spread all the way west of the Mississippi River. And you had uh, the development of two economic systems side by side in the United States, one based on slave labor and one based on free labor, Economically, uh, they uh, they had a kind of uh, close relationship with each other. Uh, Slave-grown cotton fueled the uh, Industrial Revolution in both England and the North with the textile industry. But uh, the free labor system in the North generated an ideology that emphasized uh, social mobility, uh, the the freedom of uh, workers to move up the uh, social ladder, change jobs. Uh, the North developed a, a dynamic, diversified economy that uh, was both agricultural, commercial, commercial, and increasingly industrial. 
And these two systems increasingly clashed with each other at the same time that um, religion, not just the Quakers, but a lot of other religious denominations, were becoming increasingly anti-slavery in the 19th century. Slavery was a violation of uh, the equality of all people in the sight of God. It was immoral. It was uh, it was uh, evil. So you had a both an economic and a moral uh, clash between uh, between the two sides. The North was becoming increasingly anti-slavery, and the South, which was once apologetic for slavery as a necessary evil, was increasingly seeing it as what they called a positive good. And by the 1840s and 1850s, that clash was coming into politics on the issue of the expansion of slavery into the territories and into the new states that were being admitted every few years. Uh, and that brought on uh, violent conflicts on the floor of Congress uh, in the territory of Kansas in the middle of the 1850s. Uh, John Brown uh, invaded Virginia and tried to liberate slaves at Harper's Ferry, uh, and dozens of people were killed as a consequence of that. So that by the late 1850s, the country was on the verge of some kind of a, uh, of a revolution, and slavery has lay at the root of all that. So that when the war actually broke out, uh, you you had uh, in place these convictions that had developed over the preceding 30 or 40 years, uh, or even ever since the birth of the United States. And I think it was inevitable that since it was slavery that had brought on the conflict in the first place, that slavery was going to reemerge uh, as uh, the the most uh, vital issue in determining the resolution of the conflict. So that while the North initially went to war to restore the Union, uh, it uh, step by step became a war to uh, to well, as Lincoln put it at the Gettysburg Address, in the Gettysburg Address, to give that union a new birth of freedom. Well, let me uh, ask what, you the million-dollar question: Could could the war have been avoided realistically? Was it possible, given all the variables you've just outlined? Well, I I have always said that the war that happened between 1861 and 1865, with its 620,000 deaths and the enormous destruction of, of uh, property and so on, that that was not inevitable. Uh, th the way that war developed over the four years from 1861 to 1865 was contingent on many factors uh, that, that might have gone in another direction during those four years. But that some kind of conflict, uh, in view of all of the factors that I just mentioned, some kind of conflict between the free states and the slave states uh, was inevitable. I don't think there was any way that it could have been avoided once Lincoln was elected uh, and the South responded to that election by secession. Now, there are some things that could have been done. Uh, the northern people and the Lincoln administration could have accepted the legitimacy of secession and could have said, as indeed some people in the north did say in 1861, uh, erring sisters depart in peace. Uh, the idea there, I think, was that eventually passions would cool, and uh, in another decade, two decades, whatever it might take, uh, the United States would come together again, and that slavery would gradually fade away of natural causes in the South, and that the 
issue that had divided the nation in 1861 would would uh, eventually disappear and the nation would reunite. Who knows whether that would have been possible? But if the northern people had accepted the legitimacy of secession in 1861, uh, there would have been no north, no war. If the southern people, uh, if the Davis administration in the South had not insisted on taking Fort Sumter in April 1861. Uh, the war wouldn't have started there in the way that it did. It might have started somewhere else under other circumstances. We can never know about that. But in other words, there were a number of contingent decisions in 1861 and, and thereafter that caused the war to develop the way it did. Those weren't necessarily inevitable, but some kind of conflict uh, and eventually some kind of resolution of that conflict, I think, was inevitable. Now, why did the North win? Was northern victory inevitable, especially given the fact that most scholars have argued that the South, in many ways, was better equipped. They had Robert E. Lee as a general. Many Southerners were used to using rifles, um, were better shots, according to some. Maybe that's the mythology. Why did that happen? Well, uh, that's one school of thought. Uh, another school of thought is that northern victory was inevitable because of the superior population uh, two and a half times the South's population, uh, nine or ten times its industrial capacity, a uh, far more developed system of railroads and, and uh, steamship transportation, uh, a much stronger economic infrastructure than the South, uh, that that made Northern uh, victory inevitable in the long run. I've never subscribed to that notion because if that was true in 1861, it was also inevitable that the British would win that war in 1776 or that the Americans would... Uh, win in Vietnam or would win today in Iraq, and I think none of those things are inevitable, and some of them, of course, did not happen. Uh, no, I think that uh, it, then there's the opposite argument, as you say, that the South was a more military society. It had uh, stronger uh, traditions of, um, of, of horsemanship, of uh, marksmanship, of military leadership, um, and there is some truth to that, and I think indeed that helps to explain why it took four years for the North to win the war, and why uh, some, uh, why many people, uh, contemporary observers, especially those in Europe, uh, assumed that uh, the South, that Southern victory would be inevitable, uh, especially since victory for the South meant a much more limited achievement than victory would be for the North. The South merely needed to defend what it already had. In May 1861, the Confederate government came into existence and complete uh, political and military control of almost all the territory that it claimed as part of its new nation. Uh, all it had to do was to defend what, the, what it already had. Uh, in order to win the North, uh, the North had to invade, conquer, occupy uh, the southern states and subdue all resistance which, as we're seeing right now in Iraq, is not an easy thing to do, even with overwhelming power. Um, so uh, I think the northern victory in the war was not inevitable. And the way to understand why the North won the war is to take a look at uh, a whole range of uh, fairly complex factors, including military leadership, uh, strategy, political leadership, uh, and the contingent nature of, um, of uh, various campaigns and even individual battles, battles like Antietam and Gettysburg and so on, uh, and try to analyze why uh, the North won some of those particular battles uh, or earlier, why the South won some battles which kind of postponed uh, the eventual victory. 
uh, and I think that's the way to understand it is through a narrative and an analysis of the uh, of the complex developments on both the political and military and indeed uh, economic and diplomatic fronts during the war because if there had been foreign intervention on the side of the confederacy it might have been a much different story some people have argued and suggested that the south lasted as long as it did primarily because of the leadership of robert e lee and in fact um isn't it true that Abraham Lincoln asked Robert E. Lee to lead the armies of the North? And in your estimation, was he the best general of the war? And if not, who else would have outshone him? And who were the best and worst generals in the war, and why? Well, I think it is quite true that uh, one of the reasons, maybe the principal reason, why the Confederacy was able to persist through four years of war was Robert E. Lee. Uh, and we can point to, uh, uh, we can pinpoint a particular moment in the war, I think, that helps to explain that. In the spring of 1862, Union arms in the Western Theater and along the South Atlantic coast had won a series of rather spectacular victories. They captured New Orleans. They gained control of most of the Mississippi River Valley, much of the state of Tennessee, part of the state of Louisiana and Mississippi, and so on. Uh, and the very large and well-equipped army, well-equipped army of the Potomac was within five miles of Richmond, uh, and it looked like the Confederate capital was going to fall in May of 1862. Uh, but then, through just a, a kind of fortuitous circumstance, the Confederate commander of the army defending Richard, uh, defending Richmond, uh, Joseph Johnson, was wounded, and Robert E. Lee became commander of the Army of Northern Virginia, and he immediately put into effect a counteroffensive, uh, which drove the Union Army away. And over the next year or more, he won a series of rather remarkable victories uh, that um, that basically neutralized those early Union successes in 1862 and prolonged the war for another three years. Uh, so I think that's, that's quite true. It's also true that in April 1861, uh, before Virginia had seceded, and while Robert E. Lee was a colonel in the United States Army, uh, with one of the, with the, the reputation as being uh, one of the best officers, in the army that Lincoln offered him command of the principal Union army, the army that eventually became the Army of the Potomac. Uh, but at the very time that Lee received this offer, uh, he also received news that Virginia had seceded. Uh, and even though he had opposed secession personally uh, and had spent his entire uh, adult life in the United States Army, uh, he decided that he could not go against his state and his own relatives, uh, sons and nephews that joined the Confederacy, and so uh, he joined the Confederacy, and that did make a, a, a huge difference. Well, after our break, let's talk about the impact of technology in both the Army of the Confederacy and the Army of the North, and what role navies played. With me today is Dr. James McPherson, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author. Thank you.